From the ISC, I am Lara Pedley and welcome to the ISC podcast, where I speak with inspiring insurance leaders about networking, mentorship and building a successful career in insurance. For today's episode, I'm thrilled to have with me Kirsten Beasley. Kirsten is Head of Healthcare Broking, North America for Willis Towers Watson. Kirsten delivers highly specialised insurance coverages, including professional, general and excess liability insurance for healthcare clients. Kirsten joined Willis Towers Watson in 2016 and has had 19 years of experience in the healthcare and insurance industry, most recently serving as Senior Vice President in the company's Bermuda office. Previously, she was with Allied World Assurance Co. Healthcare Underwriting Practice. Thank you so much for being here today, Kirsten. Can you tell me a bit about your your career journey? Why the insurance industry? So I, I wouldn't say that I necessarily chose insurance. It, as a young Bermudian, it was probably one of the major options that was available to me mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, once I'd graduated, um, my, my initial plan was to go to law school. But by the time I got my first degree, I was, I was tired <laughs> and I was ready to start working. And so I bagged the idea of law school and decided that I was going to enter the workforce. And when looking around sort of in the early, in the late Mm nineties, most of the options that were available were insurance and reinsurance. So Mm -hmm. that's really how I started down that pathway. Mm -hmm. And I started on the broking side. I started Marsh, I want to say in 1999. Started in broking. And and, uh, when did you move out of broking? I moved out of broking immediately, uh, relatively soon after 9-11. So in in 2001, obviously 9-11 happened. I'd been working for three years and it just so substantively changed the landscape Mm -hmm. in insurance and reinsurance. And uh, uh, there was a proliferation of new companies being set up um, in the early 2000s, which offered a really great opportunity to switch from broking to the underwriting side, which I did Mm -hmm. um, six months months after 9-11. Yeah. Oh, wow. That must have been a huge period of change. It was. It was. Um, we There was so much growth in the industry um, at, at the time, and um, in particular in my area of specialization, which is healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that happened sort of in parallel with 9-11 was the failure of a large medical malpractice carrier, St. Paul, um, and that sort of really created a capacity contraction mm-hmm. in the in the healthcare space and a lot of the new carriers that set up in Bermuda um, at the time entered healthcare. So mm-hmm. it was a, a great sort of opportunity to move over and start underwriting in an industry that I really had focused on and specialized in and really enjoyed working in. Mm. So I'm assuming you're Bermudian born and bred? I am, yes, my <laughs> whole life, yeah. But, Never um, lived anywhere else. Never lived anywhere else. No, other than university. Yeah, only Bermuda. But uh, your current role, if I'm not mistaken, is is more more global than that. It's all of North America. That's right. Yeah, I run a, a national uh, healthcare team of brokers um, all across the U.S. and then also Bermuda. Really focused on placing on the placement insurance placement needs of our North American healthcare clients. Mm. So, how was that transition? Um, from having a career based in Bermuda to now being uh, in more of a global role with, um, with different cultures. How was that journey for you? 
Yeah, it's it's been one that I've been on for many years. At my prior company, I ran our Asia and European and Bermuda, and, and also at one point, um, U.S. platforms as well. So I've always oh, okay. kind of had um, beyond the shores of Bermuda roles, which I think is really critical mm-hmm. um, to have a, a broader view of the landscape, particularly in healthcare. There's a lot of things that are translatable across borders mm-hmm. and also a lot of things that aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, so from the client perspective, it, it really has broadened my horizons and being able to speak to my now largely North American clients about my experiences with hospitals in Korea or in Australia or in Hong Kong really enriches our conversation. So I, mm-hmm. I, I, it's been a huge um, bonus for me career-wise to really have that, that global um, viewpoint, I suppose. Mm-hmm. There's one particular element, and this is something that I run into from a people management perspective. When mm-hmm. you're managing people from different cultures, mm-hmm. um, I often kind of, you know, um, a great example of it is holidays. So when the Bermudian office have holidays that the U.S. office doesn't, Mm -hmm. I often run into sort of this sort of cultural, well, oh, that's just a silly holiday that you guys have to play cricket for two days. (laughs) But actually, the holiday is a two-day celebration of the emancipation of the slaves. Mm -hmm. And so without that sort of historical and cultural context, there can be a great deal of insensitivity. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's something that I notice because I'm managing teams across um, different cultures with different sort of backgrounds. And even though I may sound American to some, um, you know, I come from a very unique cultural perspective, you know, mm-hmm. being in Bermuda, this tiny little country of 65,000 people. So. Mm, exactly. So, so how have you, um, how have you dealt with some of those cultural differences uh, and, and the pressures that might put on some relationships in your team? Um, it's, it's a great question. And, and what I tend to do is talk through them, to be quite honest. I think addressing them and just kind of saying, hey, you've got to bear in mind that even though we may sound the same as you, our, our viewpoint is very, very different. So mm-hmm. let's just be sensitive to the fact that, you know, we don't have the same holidays or we don't have the same sort of political landscape or all these other um, and even racial and maybe gender makeups within our countries. And you have to, I think you have to talk through them and address them face on. Mm. I completely agree. So, um, so rewinding slightly, um, as you mentioned, you you started off in the broking field and then you changed angle slightly after 9-11. What's, what's your career look like since that transition point? Yeah. So, um, in 2001 or early 2002, I joined an underwriting company and I was there for 15 years and sort of rose up through the ranks, specifically focused on healthcare for the large majority of that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that specialization served me well because it really allowed me to focus in on one area. Um, it was healthcare is also a female dominated area as well in, in the insurance world, both our mm-hmm. clients and a lot of our underwriters and brokers. Um, I also um, had a stint while I was at Allied World as um, chief operating officer for the mm-hmm. Bermuda office. So that again, sort of broadened my viewpoint and gave me insight into other lines of business and the mechanics of, of running a, a large office and a, and a large platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I left Allied World after 15 years. Sometimes you just need a little bit of a change um, mm-hmm. and jo- rejoin the broking world because I felt like I had a little bit of unfinished business. I'd only, <laughs> I'd only spent three years there and um, 
within a short time at Willis, um, I, uh, I was put in this role of managing the North American healthcare team. So, Great. So you mentioned the size of Bermuda, 65,000 people. It doesn't sound like a lot of people, but um, you've got large insurance companies uh, in Bermuda. Can you explain a little bit about what the insurance sector looks like there and, um, and how you've managed to navigate your way through these bigger organizations, even on, on a small island? So, you know, a great insight into how Bermuda looks, I suppose, from an insurance reinsurance perspective, can be through the lens of my company. Willis Towers Watson is a large global organization, I believe, with 30 to 40,000 employees globally. Mm -hmm. Um, In the Bermuda office, we're probably an office, I want to say, of 30 to 50 people managing large multinational Fortune 500 companies and placing their insurance business. Um, And so we're interacting clearly with a robust insurance and reinsurance market. Um, that is used to placing global business um, for large multinational companies. So even though we are this tiny island with this great concentrated nexus of insurance and reinsurance expertise that's mm-hmm. used to operating with the biggest and most complex um, companies and, and with the biggest and most complex insurance problems. Mm. So your team in Bermuda is, well, your office is, as you say, 30 to 50 people. What's the culture there like? Because arguably compared to London, that's, that's very small. So culturally, I mean, there's probably a different, a number of different ways that I could answer that. We have some particular dynamics in Bermuda. um, If I can sort of jump into diversity and inclusion, Mm -hmm. Uh, 60% of our population is, is a white population. Mm-hmm. Um, but those dynamics are not reflected in our workforce, okay. uh, particularly as you go higher up the ladder. Um, so, for example, at the executive management level, uh, nearly 95% of executive managers are, are white. So you've mm-hmm. got this, this complete um, imbalance so such that our workforce is not necessarily reflective of our community mm. all the way up through the ladder. Um, the lower, the lower down you go. So if you call it sort of non-professional, it's maybe it, it's completely skewed the other way. 60% of that population is a, is a black population. So okay. these create some very particular cultural dynamics in how mm. international business and the, and the larger community interact. Mm. Um, oftentimes race in the workplace in Bermuda is the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. that people are a little bit afraid to talk about. Um, people are more comfortable talking about gender issues in the workplace in Bermuda, perhaps, than they are the, it, about race issues. Um, so so those particular cultural dynamics probably play out completely differently mm-hmm. than London, I would imagine. Given that we are in dive-in week, what are some of the initiatives Bermuda are doing to try and reduce that skewed uh, workforce representation? Yes, um, So I chair uh, the Diversity and Inclusion Committee for an organization called the Association of Bermuda International Companies, ABIC. Um, And we are, and there are many, many organizations that are tackling um, diversity and inclusion, obviously dive in, Mm -hmm. um, and I'll, I'll touch on that as well. But we're, we're trying to come at it from multiple angles. The ABIC role, of course, is as an association and with representative members is one of education. We're trying to put out materials that give a pathway for HR managers 
managers and our member companies um, on the multiple different ways that they can start to um, address diversity and inclusion issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so have facilitating focus groups at the CEO level, um, having very specialized focus groups that are um, elevating conversations around black men and insurance and reinsurance is one particular area. Um, so there are a number of things that were kind of, I, I call it, you know, sort of top down, bottom up, you know, grassroots, as well as from a leadership perspective. From a dive-in perspective, um, there's a robust committee around dive-in. It's our fifth year in Bermuda for dive-in, which is great. Mm-hmm. And it, I, I have to say, were it not for dive-in, I probably would not have anywhere near the awareness or the engagement that I now have in diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's been one of the key things that dive-in has achieved in Bermuda mm-hmm. is creating awareness and starting the conversation. I think it was just background noise to a lot of people in our industry before dive-in came. So it's it's really unfortunate that dive-in has been cancelled in Bermuda thanks to the, the tropical sc- storm that hasn't actually come. Um, but what were some of the themes that you'd identified to explore over in Bermuda during dive-in this week? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the, there were themes around leadership and empowerment. Um, impact was a big focus and, and really trying to show measurable impact. I was going to be moderating and leading a panel on an initiative called We Speak, which I know you want to talk about a little bit more, which really talks about elevating women's voices and teaching them to have presence at the table and, and presentation skills. Um, so a lot of the themes we're focused around those kind of, you know, how can we have impact? How can we move the needle forward? So do tell us a bit more about We Speak and how it all started because it's a fascinating uh, initiative uh, and um, I would like to share it with everybody. Sure. So We Speak is one of the most collaborative group group-oriented, successful efforts that I've ever been a part of. And its its birth is kind of an interesting tale. It starts from two different parallel tracks with two different groups working on the same problem um, from different angles. And I'll, I'll tell my, my part of that story first. Um, I have a terrible crippling fear of public speaking that has plagued me my entire career. Um, And I admitted this in an article um, about a year and a half ago, and I had a colleague reach out to me and say, so do I, I never knew that about you. And so we started talking saying, well, gosh, well, you know, we can't be alone. You know, wouldn't it be great to do something about this? So we got together and we decided we, we needed to collect data. How many of us were there? How, how widespread was the problem? Um, and we did. We, we launched a survey. I think we got over 250 responses to that survey. It was women-only focused. Mm-hmm. And we were trying to figure out, you know, how many of you are afraid of speaking? How many of you have been given resource or training by your companies? How many of you actually do speak to despite your fear or avoid it altogether. Mm. Um, And the results that we got back from that was that there was out of 200 responses, which if you think of our workforce is probably substantively statistically significant, Mm. um, 10% of the female workforce in insurance and reinsurance, Mm. um, 70% of them, over 70%, nearly 80% of them had a fear of public speaking. Wow. And then of those that had a fear, nearly 90% of them had not accepted public speaking um, opportunities as a result. Wow. And if you, uh, And then if you look at the broader 
most women, 90% of them in our workforce, say that public speaking is a, is a required part of their job. Mm. So if you think of all those numbers of women who are afraid to do it, don't do it because they're afraid, yet their job requires it, has that suppressed their progression? Mm. It's certainly suppressed their voice, our collective voice in the industry. Mm. So that, um, I was speaking about that on a dive-in panel last year mm. when a, a colleague came over to me, Kathleen Ferris, and said, hey, we need to sit down and go for lunch. So at the lunch, I discovered that she was working on the speaking issue from a separate angle. And that angle was Every time we go to a big event or there is a big event, um, it's all men on the panels, mannels, if you will. Um, And we need to change that. There are qualified women who have something to say, and and we need to create a database of speakers so that sort of the, you know, the marketing and the magazines and the people who set up conferences have a place that they can go to and say, hey, do you need speakers? We, We can give them a broad pool of women to choose from. So we joined forces, um, the survey group and the database group is what we call it. And We Speak was born in, about this time last year. So it's been a year in, in the making. It's amazing. And how many people are a part of We Speak now? Um, I believe we have about 15 board members. Um, we've done two large events, the first of which was a Coach the Coaches event in January of this year. It was our first event. If you think about it, we had Kathleen and I had lunch in September of 2018, and three months later, we held our first event. So it's been pretty substantive, the energy and the engine around this. Um, and the, the Coach the Coaches event was to coach up a team of senior women coaches Uh, that would enable people like me who are afraid of speaking to have a pool of women that I can tap into if I have an event that I need to speak at and I want some training, I want some one-on-one. Because one of the the facts that we uncovered for our survey was that companies are not providing resources uh, to train women to public speak. And it's not just a natural skill. It's a learned skill. um, Mm. And we know that. And having some kind of proper coaching around that greatly increases the chances of success. Um, so we, we coach that pool of coaches with a view to having a boot camp um, for anyone and everyone, all levels, um, beyond insurance and reinsurance, all industries in Bermuda. Um, and that boot camp was held in spring of this year. It was our first boot camp, and it was probably one of the most um, inspiring days that I've been a part of. Um, we had a, a, over 100 women come together and in small groups of five initially, really faced down very legitimate and substantive fears of speaking. Um, So speaking in a small group of five, and then speaking in a small group of 10. And at the end of the event, we kind of took a risk and we said, hey, we're going to invite you up here to say what today's meant to you. Um, And you can say it at this mic in front of the whole group of 100 plus our committee, 120. And, uh, you know, multiple women did it. And it was, it was, you know, we, there was a line of women waiting to speak at the mic. And these are women who had, you know, legitimate fears of speaking and yet still using their voice. I thought it was, um, it was, it was an emotional moment for me. Mm, Absolutely. I can imagine. And, um, and you're, you're so right. It's not just an industry problem. This will be uh, a problem for, for all industries across the spectrum um, for people with forward facing roles where they have to be 
uh, seen and heard. And yes. generally you find the people that are comfortable in that position or have had the training tend to do all the speaking. Um, and that's not the right message we should be getting across given that we're a, an industry trying to make change and represent that change in, in our activities. Yeah, I think the diversification of voices at the table starts with being comfortable using your voice and expressing your opinion. Um, And again, that's not natural to everybody. And I I really think we need to make sure that we're giving skills to, to women young women um, to, to do that. We need to diversify the panels. Um, we need to, you know, we need to make sure that there's a diverse voice being heard and a diverse representation because when you see, you know, when you see a woman sitting up on a panel, you think, oh, I can do that. Um, so I, I just think it's critical. And I think it's fantastic. Is it just based in Bermuda at the moment? It is, but we absolutely, you know, we've done some robust strategic planning this year um, with the help of our founding partner, EY, um, and we've, we've got plans to grow in a thoughtful and sustained manner, and we recognize that this issue is not just a Bermuda issue. It's, you know, women and women across the globe have this fear. Um, So we absolutely have plans to diversify. Um, I'd also like to um, go into the school system because I think if this is taught um, at an earlier age, um, then maybe it's potentially mitigating the issue or preventing the issue before it really progresses. Um, so we, we also, you know, potentially have plans for that. So we've got it all sort of mapped out and now it's about the execution. <laughs> no, it's great. And I think there's really a piece about um, that continued coaching because I remember at school we did a lot of public speaking and I was so comfortable doing it at school. And then I spent a period of 10, 12 years where I didn't do any public speaking and then pushing yourself again and plunging yourself into a, a new situation with a new audience um, with m- a lot more responsibility that the pressure is huge in it and um, it mounts up and, and you just end up getting a, a, this fear of public speaking. Yeah. Um, I tell at the boot camp, I, I'm pretty public about my failures because I think people have the opportunity. It normalizes it, right? We all have those ridiculous moments. And I tell two stories um, about, you know, really embarrassing moments. One of which was I just come back from maternity leave. So I was really rusty to your point, right? You, it's a skill you have to maintain and use. And, you know, we were just being asked to go around the boardroom table and it was a really large group. I want to say it was 40 to 50 people. My competitors were there, clients. And all we had to do was say our name and our company. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't even say my own name. And it was, that was the moment for me. That's when I started to get angry about it. Um, and that was, you know, 15 years ago now. Um, and I, I made a sort of deal with myself that I would say yes every time I was asked to speak and not run away because I was so angry that I couldn't even get my own name out out of sheer nerves. Um, and the second time was as recently as 2016. I'd been on gardening leave for 10 months, so I was completely out of practice, and I'd been asked to speak at the sports awards for my old high school, and um, I got up there, and my whole body start, started shaking, like my legs were shaking. It was, a, it was a clear Pyrex podium, so the whole audience could see that I was shaking, and all of a sudden, I start hearing these kids whispering, she's shaking, look at her shake. I mean, it was mortifying. That was three years ago. Um, and, and again, I'd been out on gardening leave. So the two 
worst sort of events for me was when I had stopped using that muscle memory or whatever, and, and I was out of practice. So it just really shows the importance of sustained coaching and practice and, and being able to ha- have a network of support to tap in to help you keep it honed and brushed up. So where are you at now with your, your uh, public speaking journey? I am slowly getting more comfortable. I've been doing a lot of speaking in the last three years. I'm, I'm more comfortable with the panel, you know, where I can, I can prep my knowledge and I can I, just having a conversation. I'm comfortable with that. Where I'm less comfortable is when I have to give a keynote or um, read something off a paper. I, I still need to read off the paper. Um, and that's, that's tough for me. And, and I shake terribly. So I always have to have something to grip onto to balance and try and control that. So I'm not, I'm not there yet, but I get coaching. I get coaching and I'm making great progress. And I got coached for, you know, this podcast to make sure that I (laughs) make sure that I knew what I was walking into and I felt comfortable. So yeah. Well, that's great to hear. Honestly, it it is. And you're taking it in your stride, which I think uh, a lot of people need to find the courage to do because until you do say yes, and until you um, go and take those opportunities, it's not going to get any better. I think a lot of people think the more, the more you know your subject or, or the more experience you've had in an industry, the easier it gets to speak. And that's just not the case. It's not. Um, and, and what I would say is the earlier you start um, to give yourself more of, more of a runway to develop the skill. I was always really opinionated in school. And so when I came to the workforce, I, I just expected my voice to be there. And when I went to use it and it wasn't, I was floored by it. So I would say, give yourself the runway seek out opportunities to um, speak when and wherever, no matter how small, um, because that, that will help you hone that skill and develop it um, and, and put you in a position that you're much more comfortable when, when that moment comes, so you can seize it. And that's not just for a keynote or, or a delivery that can be from, from speaking up in a meeting, right? Absolutely. I used to be afraid to ask questions. Um, And I remember, you know, I would get my heart would race and all of a sudden, you know, the whole world would disappear just because I was raising my hand to ask a question. But I can tell you those moments where you ask questions and you you get people's attention can be critical career progressing moments. Um, Because sometimes a thoughtful question, a well-timed thoughtful question can really change the dynamics of a meeting or a conversation. So, being able to use your voice in those moments is so important and, and fight through the nerves. Um, and that's what the coaching process is really all about. And that's what we're preaching, right? It's all about diversity of thought. And you won't get that diversity of thought, especially in these important meetings in the boardroom and the executive, unless everyone is raising their hand and has the confidence to do that. Absolutely. So looking back at your career, and other than public speaking, are there any other challenges that you, you've you come across that really stand out? So, yeah, um, there's one, one in particular that kind of stands out for me. And that's, you know, after a certain point, you know, you're 15, 20 years into your career, it can start to feel a little bit not monotonous, but okay, what am I doing? How am I challenging myself to grow beyond up the ladder. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really started thinking, you know, I, I want to learn something new. I want to diversify myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and 
it really was coming out of the fact that, you know, I needed to find a new way to be fulfilled in my career. My, I really enjoyed my job. Um, I really love the people that I work with. Um, but, you know, 15 years in the same industry, you need to sometimes figure out a way to diversify. Um, and so I responded to that challenge by, by seeking to educate myself further. And so I'm on the, on the process to get a master's sort of two years in. This is my final year, three years. And it's in what subject? It's healthcare focused. Um, it's at University of Edinburgh. It's it's called Global eHealth. It's a health health and technology. So the conversion of healthcare and technology and how that's changing the landscape. So I, you know I'm doing it for the sheer interest of it, and I've never enjoyed educating myself as much as I am now because I'm doing it solely for me. And I think I guess my message is you know the challenge was is that you know I was maybe languishing a little bit and I needed something to kickstart myself and doing that education gave me the juice to kickstart myself and it's reinvigorated my view and my approach to healthcare. Um, And speaking on that point, uh, what you want changing throughout your career, I think that's a really uh, valid point and it's, and it's the same for a lot of people. Uh, So my question is when you started out your career, what did success look like for you then compared to now? I think that's a spectacular question because it's absolutely different. So success to me when I was in my 20s and 30s was the next rung up the ladder, the next rung and the paycheck. How can I measure myself by my title and how can I measure myself by my paycheck as compared to peers or as compared to the industry? And now that is not what I'm worried about. Um, I success for me is fulfillment and happiness. And I know that sounds like it's something off of an inspirational poster, but I find success through taking a great deal of pride in what I do in my day-to-day work. I, I um, sit on a number of boards, um, the ABIC board, the We Speak board, and, and prior boards um, within the community. And I get a great deal of enjoyment out of the platform that has been afforded me through my career. So it's sort of, it's less about the next ladder on my career and more about how can I pay it forward or how can I, how can I do something that um, sort of brings the circle back around, if you will. (laughs) No, I love it. Well, thank you so much for coming and tuning in today and sharing, sharing your stories, um, but also telling us a bit more about We Speak. Um, And I'm looking forward to hearing about your global expansion plans and, and when it comes to London, hopefully. Absolutely. And please, you know, check out wespeak.bm if you guys want more information. We'll put it all down in the the description box. There you go. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to the ISC podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate, subscribe and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. You can get more information about the ISC at www.theinsurancesupperclub.com. Our show is produced by Connor Sweetman of Breakthrough Media. I'm Lara Pedley. See you next time.